Good Sunday morning. This is the Arts Section. I'm your host, Gary Zydek. Welcome to WDCB's Arts and Culture magazine. Every week we spotlight creative people, events, and ideas in the Chicago area arts community while also fostering broader discussions on music, film, theater, and other creative endeavors. On today's program, I'll preview this year's Chicago Underground Film Festival. This will be the 30th edition of the annual showcase of the avant-garde and eccentric. The dueling critics Carrie Reed and Jonathan Abarbanel will be here for part two of their fall theater preview. Later in the show, I'll catch up with the author of a book about the cultural influence of Star Trek. This week is the 57th anniversary of the original series debuting. And we'll hear about an exhibit that profiles the local connections of a vending machine that sold fun. All that's coming up. Thanks for making time for Arts and Culture. The Chicago Underground Film Festival is set to kick off this week. The fest is celebrating 30 years of presenting the types of films you definitely won't find at your local cineplex. Founded in 1993, the annual showcase of the avant-garde, experimental, and undefinable is moving to a new home. In fact, the festival is headed to a different side of town. This year's Chicago Underground Film Festival will take place at the recently remodeled Harper Theater in the Hyde Park neighborhood. I recently caught up with festival artistic director Brian Wendorf to talk about his approach to programming and the films he's most excited to share with audiences. Wendorf has seen a lot over the past three decades. He helped start the festival in the early 90s. This is a milestone anniversary for the Chicago Underground Film Festival. Have you done any reflecting on the past 30 years as you get ready for this edition of the fest? Yeah, yeah, I think I have spent some time reflecting, although... You know, I try to focus on the festival that's happening right now and where we want to go from here rather than spending too much time looking back. We probably did more reflection 10 years ago when the festival hit our 20th anniversary. We did some retrospective programming that year of highlights from past years and stuff. We're not really doing it much of that this year. We just have a big program of new underground films to focus on where we are right now. You know, it's hard to know what are the years that you should be right, right. celebrating for an anniversary, yeah. right? You know, 20th, 25, 30, right. 40, 50, you know. Right. But 30th, it is a milestone year. I mean, we're not ignoring that completely in our planning. But for this year, we had so many good new films to showcase that it didn't seem to make sense to do much looking back. You know, it's it's all about right here, right now, and moving forward. This year's festival will kick off with a special screening at the Cisco Film Center of a film that can be challenging to describe. The opening film is called Hello Dankness, and it is by two sisters from Australia. They actually live in New York now, but they make their work under the collective name Soto Jerk. This new film, Hello Dankness, premiered at the Berlin Film Festival. I mean, the film actually is kind of a satirical time capsule of America from 2016 to 2021, 22. 
So it starts with the 2016 presidential election and it goes through the January 6th riot. But it's all done using appropriated footage from Hollywood films. So, for example, in, in this film, Tom Hanks plays a Bernie bro. Now, Tom Hanks did not <laughs> act in this movie. They just used footage of Tom Hanks in Castaway, in The Burbs, in all these different films, right? Um, and that Benning is a Hillary supporter. <laughs> also appropriating footage from all these different films. Bruce Dern is the MAGA guy. <laughs> you know, um, there's a whole, you know, and it's so seamlessly melded together. It's a hilarious film. It's a thought-provoking political film. It's also an avant-garde art film. All these things all at once. And it's also a stoner musical. (laughs) (laughs) So, I mean, it just, like, on that level, it hits so many different buttons. It just seems the perfect opening. It, It sets the tone for Chicago Underground perfectly. I read the film description for that, and I was going to ask you about yeah. hello dankness it sounds like so uh, ambitious i really i didn't know what uh what to expect it's um it is very ambitious and it and it works on a number of different levels too so it, it's an accessible film but it's also a very smart art film the fact that it's doing all these different things all at the same time is really intriguing and interesting and it's clearly an underground film there is no way this film is ever going to be playing at a multi you know, <laughs> right, right. As a commercially, no distributor will touch it. In addition to Hello Dankness, some of the other films at this year's festival touch on issues related to AI. You know, there's a lot of talk right now in the last year about artificial intelligence, about things like ChatGPT4, the current writer strike and, and actor strikes in Hollywood are addressing these sorts of things. I don't think what Hello Dankness is doing is taking anything away from the, those actors, but it is showing what can be done with this technology. And, you know, it's one thing for, for Soda Jerk to do this. I think that the um, Screen Actors Guild has a legitimate concern about the Hollywood studios doing this with, the, with actors and making new films. You know, that, that's a legitimate thing to can be concerned with. I don't think what, you know, Hello Dankness is doing, which is parody and, and fair use, um, falls in the same category. But it does draw attention to these concerns, right? And what can be done with the technology today. Right. So that that's pretty interesting. When you were programming this and you started uh, highlighting films that you thought would be a, a good fit, then did you start to see that those trends emerge or did you go into it with an idea that that might be one of the... No, I don't. I don't go in to anything looking for the trends, or you know, or the preconceived idea of what the festival should be that year. When we finally decided these are the films that we're interested in programming, and I'm putting things together in programs, then I might start seeing patterns. You know, sometimes those connections aren't really even always. I mean, this in this case they are, but in some cases they're not really apparent to me until later. I put the films together kind of intuitively in a program and then later i talked to somebody and they're like man that all made sense like this these all connected this way and i was like i didn't even think of that my favorite films in cuff and in general but especially at cuff are the films where like is that a hello dankness is it a documentary because it is telling the story of life in the united states during this period you know but it's also a comedy and a parody 
you know, it's a narrative, it's an experimental film, it's all of those things. If you're just tuning in, I'm Gary Zydek. This is the Arts Section. I'm talking with Brian Wendorf. He's the Artistic Director of the Chicago Underground Film Festival, which gets underway Wednesday, September 13th. Every year, Wendorf tries to program some films with local connections. This year, there are three standouts. We have several very Chicago-specific films in the festival this year that are having world premieres, and Melomaniac is one. By the time this airs, there's a good chance that that film may have sold out. One screening has completely sold out. I'm going to talk about it a little bit anyway, just give it a little taste of what the festival has to offer. Um, It's a documentary about a guy here in Chicago named Adam Jacobs, and a lot of people who have gone to any indie rock, alternative rock show in Chicago from the late 80s up until late 2000s. I mean, he's kind of stopped recently, but for the last, you know, at least 20, maybe 30 years, he would be at whatever the big show in town was, whether it was at Lounge Axe or the Empty Bottle or Metro or the Hideout, Adam would be there making audio recordings of the band. And he has this incredible archive of recordings of just about, you know, every 11th Dream Day show in Chicago, every Mekons show, all these bands that he loved. He didn't get permission from the clubs or the bands at first to do this. He'd just show up and set up his equipment and start doing it. And he did get some pushback from some bands um, and some of the club owners at first. Over time, people understood what he was doing and that he wasn't he wasn't selling bootlegs of their recordings. He was just recording them for him, himself. There's a little bit of OCD going on with Adam. I know him. Um, you know, there, it's definitely a compulsion to record this stuff that he had for a long time. Um, like I said, he sort of stopped doing it, but now he has this huge archive of these recordings. And the bands look at it now quite differently and look back and go like, they're really glad that somebody, you know, there's this amazing archive of the Chicago music scene. And he's trying to figure out what what to do with it. You know, there's, there's a legacy here. There's something should be done with this audio archive. Um, so Melomaniac is his story. The Jan Terry documentary that we're showing is another, she was kind of this Chicago outsider artist, musician, um, you know, known for making what is considered the worst music video ever made. She's going to be performing at one of the parties at the festival this year because of that. So her story, you know, and her um, the documentary is called Jan Terry No Rules, and that's also a world premiere showing both on Saturday and Sunday during the festival. So there was, are tickets available for that. Was there a connection to Marilyn Manson with her? Like she met Yeah, him? well, Marilyn Manson became a fan of her. He, he saw her videos and... He was a fan, and he. I think first he invited her to perform at, I think it was Rose McGowan's birthday party. Um, I think she, that he had her open for him a few times for Marilyn, at Marilyn Manson shows in Chicago. Yeah, he, he became a, a big fan and you know, gave her a lot. And, you know, Jan had no idea who Marilyn Manson was, <laughs> and that, you know, but, you know, she's met him and, you know, he supports her music, so she's cool with it. <laughs> you know? Yeah, it's a very unusual and very Chicago, and Chicago, and very underground. Because yeah, not not everybody's going to be familiar with Jan Terry. And our our closing film this year for Kicks, which is also a world premiere, is a documentary, also a Chicago character, Eugene Thomas, who's a 
retired Chicago security guard, but he's also a jazz musician. And in the 80s and 90s, he starred in over a dozen kung fu and ninja movies in Taiwan and the Philippines and Hong Kong. You know, he's still living in Chicago, working as a security guard part-time, but he has this amazing story of having done these action movies in the 80s and 90s. Filmmaker Sean Fahey met him, heard his story, and was like, we got to make a movie about you about this you know he's also a jazz musician like i said uh plays saxophone yeah that sounds incredible yeah it's an incredible incredible story so if you know you're into jazz music you're into martial arts you're into chicago you're into the south side oh man i'm into all those things so we haven't had a a chance to talk about uh, the biggest change for this year's festival the setting for the past 10 years cuff has set up shop at the logan theater this year it's moving to the south side and you're going to be at the Harper Theater. What led to the venue change? It wasn't something we were like, oh, we should move to Hyde Park. Had a great experience with the Logan Theater. Been there for 10 years. No complaints with the Logan. I don't want it to sound like I'm complaining about anything. But the rental prices at the Logan continue to you know, go up a little bit all the time. And we are an underground film festival and very budget conscious. And we were set to go back. But originally the plan was to move the festival back to the June dates that we had traditionally been in prior to the pandemic. And because of the pandemic, a lot of things got shifted around. Uh, But we were trying to move back to June. The Logan finally said, we'd love to have the festival back, but we don't know if we can do June because too many big summer films are going to be opening around that time. Initially, we wanted to keep those June dates. So we started meeting with other theaters to see what our options were. Eventually, because we were having a difficult time figuring out where we were going to move, we decided, okay, we'll move back to September, and then we can go back to the Logan. But right before we made our final deal with the Logan, we were like, let's talk to the... We had one more theater to talk to, which is the Harper, which just reopened in Hyde Park. The price and everything that we got from the Harper, the deal was good enough that it just seemed like we had to give it a shot. It's kind of an experiment because it's a new area. You know, we have had to learn a lot about where to hold parties and things and working with a new theater and things. It's all a lot of things that we kind of knew how things would work at the Logan. We had to relearn at the Harper, but it seems to be going really well. I mean, their theaters are a little on the smaller side, but they're giving us three screening rooms. So most of the programming at the festival this year is going to have two screening kinds, which is something I've wanted to do for a while. So that's that's really what it came down to, you know. And and then opening night is at the Gene Siskel. Right. Um, that's so, kind of a, a little more of a, a prestige screening for for the Soda Jerk film. After uh, 30 years, of course, you know, you have a, a fan base that, that's going to come no matter what, but then do you think being now on the south side, maybe you open yourselves up to even like a newer audience? I hope so. Yeah, I think that's that's exactly what we've been thinking, right? I was a little concerned about this move when the idea first was brought up. And I started talking to some of the Chicago filmmakers that have been in Cuff in the past. And they said exactly what you just said, that the core audience that goes to Cuff is going to go where Cuff is. But I'm also hoping that being at the Harper and being in Hyde Park, that we'll maybe have some new people coming in and checking the festival out for the first time. 
You know, we hired a lot of volunteers and, and staff from the area as much as we could to help get the word out to people. You know, we have people working with the festival who live in the Hyde Park area. They're going to be able to talk about the festival and get people they know coming out for it. So, yeah, I hope it does work Work to bring some new new people out for the festival. Looking forward to this year's festival. Brian, thanks so much for making time to talk with us. Yeah, thank you. Brian Wendorf is the artistic director of the Chicago Underground Film Festival. The 30th edition of the fest starts on Wednesday, September 13th and continues through next Sunday, September 17th. You can find a complete schedule at cuff.org. That's C-U-F-F. And a quick reminder to check out the art section online. Visit the program's website over at theartsection.org. There you can find past episodes and individual features available to listen to on demand anytime you want, plus pictures and links that go along with all the features you hear on the show. Also, you can find my email address, gzydek at wdcb.org there. If you ever want to reach out with a comment, suggestion, or question, uh, email, or you can find me on Instagram or X, formerly known as Twitter, with the handle onairgary. Hope you're having a good Sunday. And you are listening to the arts section. I'm Gary Zydek. Joining me remotely are the dueling critics, Carrie Reed and Jonathan Abarbanel. Good morning. Good morning, Gary. Good morning, Gary. It's time for part two of our fall theater preview. Last week on the show, Carrie and Jonathan highlighted some of the plays they're looking forward to seeing this fall. This week, the focus is on musicals and some theater festivals that are taking place over the next few months. The two of you had so much to say last week, we ran out of time, so we're continuing the preview this week. Indeed. Well, either Carrie or myself, one of us talks too much, so we didn't get to the musicals last week. <laughs> well, you know, uh, it's funny. You would ask you know, if, if we thought theater was back, and here it is. I mean, there's just way too much to talk about, Gary. Here it is. <laughs> So uh, there are a lot of musicals, uh, and a lot of them in the fall are are familiar return visits uh, by familiar shows, but some of them are are new. And uh, my choices are kind of a mixture, beginning with Hamilton, which is coming back now for, I believe, the third time to the Nederlander Theater. It opens September 12th, and it's running at least to December 30th. They're selling tickets through December 30th, but they're not saying that's the end of the run. Hamilton, the really, really great and innovative musical about our founding fathers that totally reconceives them. I know many listeners probably have seen it, maybe more than once, but if you haven't, please don't miss it. Go see Hamilton at the Nederlander Theater. Another one which is new to local audiences is Chicago premiere of American Psycho, being presented by Cocandy Productions, a company that 
uh, Carrie and I both admire, uh, at the Chopin Theater on the near north side. And it is a contemporary musical about a focuses on a New York uh, young up and rising business executive who has um, a pretty dark psychosexual secret. American Psycho, very much an adult musical. The book for it is written by Roberto Aguirre Sacasso, who uh, many of you may know if you're into uh, 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 the adult uh, comic books. Um, what do they call the genre that he works in? The graphic novels? Genre. Yeah, graphic <laughs> novels. Uh, a great author of graphic novels. He's done a little theater in the past, but his participation really... Uh, uh, caught my attention for American Psycho by Co-Candy Productions. I'm also very much looking forward to that production, and all I can say is I'm hopeful that there's a song about business cards. New card. What do you think? Whoa. Very nice. Look at that. Picked them up from the printers yesterday. Good coloring. That's bone. And the lettering is something called Cillian Braille. It's very cool, Bateman. But that's nothing. Look at this. That is really nice. Eggshell with Romalian type. What do you think? Nice. Jesus. <laughs> that is really super. How do nitwit like you get so tasteful? <laughs> I can't believe that Bryce prefers Van Patten's card to mine. But wait. You ain't seen nothing yet. Raised lettering. Pale Nimbus. White. Impressive. Very nice. Mm. Let's see Paul Allen's card. Look at that subtle off-white coloring. The tasteful thickness of it. Oh my god. It even has a watermark. Something wrong? Patrick, you're sweating. That was a, a scene from the film adaptation of Brett Easton Ellis's popular novel American Psycho, the musical adaptation being presented by Co-Candy Productions starts September 14th and runs through November 26th. That was a Jonathan pick. Let's move over to Carrie. What's on your list? I'm going to be keeping uh, the genre <laughs> going a little bit. My first pick is Little Shop of Horrors at the Paramount, a familiar title to many, to be sure. What I'm really intrigued about with this one is it is the main stage debut of Landry Fleming, who only began directing musicals within, I'd say, the last 18 months. Uh, she co-directed with Jim Corti Fun Home at the Paramount last year, which I quite liked. That was in their smaller Copley Theater space. And then she's directed a couple of shows at the Obeque. I think I talked about her really lovely production of Best Little Whorehouse in Texas there for the program last winter. So she's definitely up and coming. It seems like she's got some interesting ideas for this. But if you know Little Shop at all, based on the cult film by Roger Corman about, you know, a nebuchadnezzar, you know, uh, assistant in a plant shop who has to make some hard decisions about the love of his life and the Venus flytrap that occupies his literal physical space. Uh, I think you'll you'll know what you're in for. But I think this is also kind of a fun choice for fall. And I think definitely a chance to catch who I assume is going to be a bigger and <laughs> larger name in Chicago theater, because she's certainly been making a great rise just in the last 18 months. Little Shop of Horrors, The Paramount, directed by Landry Fleming, and that is open now. Uh, my next choice is a familiar show, 
Young Frankenstein, this is the musical version, Mel Brooks' adaptation of his movie, Young Frankenstein, being done at the Mercury Theater running October 13th uh, through the end of the year to December 31st. It's a fun, known show. Uh, L. Walter Stearns, the executive director of the Mercury Theater, is directing, and he always brings fresh ideas uh, to his production. So I'm eager to see what he is going to do with Young Frankenstein and whom the cast is, which had not been announced uh, as of the time we were making this recording, but Young Frankenstein uh, at the Mercury Theater. My next choice, Kelly, I think it's one of your choices too, is Brigadoon, uh, done Och, by Music, yes. theater, Och, music <laughs> theater Works. Music Theater Works at the North Shore Center for the Performing Arts in Skokie, and running all to short uh, October nineteenth to um, November twelfth. This is a longer run because I think they're in the in the space that Northlight is normally in because they've been okay. using kind of both spaces at the North Shore Center since they moved so away right. from October nineteenth. It opens and mm-hmm. runs to November twelfth. Yes, that is so. Brigadoon, classic American musical, and one of the things I love about music theater workshop productions is they always have a full orchestra with real violins. Jonathan, what's next on your list? Well, next on my list is a world premiere of a Broadway-bound musical that is that great rarity in American musical theater. It's not based on anything, or for the most part it's not. And the show is Betty Boop, the musical, which is having its pre-Broadway shakedown at the CIBC Theater in the Loop from November 19th to December 24th. And the creative forces, the writers, the director, the choreographer, are all great Broadway hands who have successes. Now, Betty Boop, the character, is known from her classic of cartoons of the 1930s and the 1940s and various revivals. But this is an entirely original musical about Betty Boop as a celebrity in New York who wants to get away from from the spotlight and and have herself a night out. And it's anybody's guess what they're going to do (laughs) with the character and the material. So I am really looking forward to Betty Boop the musical. CIBC Theater, November 19th to December 24th. And if I may conclude, I wanted to give a shout-out to one of the great Chicago and indeed global musical institutions, Lyric Opera of Chicago, uh, which will open its season September 23rd with Richard Wagner's The Flying Dutchman and continue it in November with the comic... uh, the Daughter of the Regiment by Donizetti, and then also the drama Yanufa, uh, the Czech play by Janacek. So those are the first three operas in lyric opera season, which will continue into the spring and always concludes with a uh, production of a Broadway musical. And I'd like to uh, move into talking about some of the festivals that we can look forward to. The first is Destinos, which Jonathan and I, we, you and I have talked about this on the program before. It is the Chicago Latino Theater Alliance's international, uh, Chicago International uh, Latino Theater Festival. And the name says it all. They have local companies. They have national companies. They have international companies. It is a complete, wonderful menu of shows taking place citywide. One show in particular that I'm interested in is a piece that will be running in the smaller Owen space, the Goodman, called Lucha, Lucha Tietel. It is uh, a combination oh, yeah. of a Mexican wrestling show with Aztec gods. So imagine a luchadores who are Aztec gods 
fighting each other in real time. Who doesn't want to see that? <laughs> if you don't want to see that, you are dead inside. I'm just going to say that. This show originated Whoops. at Prism Theater in Dallas, and now it's getting a Chicago outing. But that's just one of the many offerings. Uh, some the, the festival itself, they say, runs from September 28th to November 12th. There's a little overlap with that, depending on who the companies are. I cannot possibly encapsulate all of it for you. Just go to their site, and you know we'll have that on our site, and you can definitely check out everything that's going on. And then the definitely, other festival, definitely, definitely, oh, definitely, yeah, the Destinos. This is the sixth annual uh, Latino International Theater Festival, and by far the biggest and most diverse. Uh, just a, a little hint. Uh, visiting companies from, uh, uh, from from Europe, from South America, from wherever, are usually uh, presenting for a fairly short run. Sure, usually one week. From yeah, a few yeah. days yeah. to a week or two weeks. Local companies which are participating, and there are many, will have longer runs of four to six weeks. And, uh, yes, do go to the website uh, and uh, for Destinos and check out the full schedule. And then there's a playwright who's being honored uh, with her own festival, Pearl Clegg. You may or may not know the name. She's produced pretty often. She is uh, a stalwart uh, of, of many theater scenes. But this African-American playwright, who is also the poet laureate of, it, I, I believe, of the city of Atlanta, is being honored with two full productions and a whole slate of readings. Uh, Goodman is presenting the Nasarima Society, one of her newer plays, that's a comedy that's opening on the 16th. It's a, about a group of black debutantes in 1964, Montgomery, Alabama. And then Remy Bumpo is on the 14th of September opening her uh, Blues for an Alabama Sky, which is set in the, uh, during the Harlem Renaissance area. That's one of her better-known plays. But there are so many things that are happening. One thing that's happening on October 2nd that I'm really intrigued by is a reading of a wonderful essay she wrote called Mad at Miles. This will be performed as a choreo poem by Jackie Taylor of Black Ensemble Theater. It's an essay that Clegg wrote about her changes and feelings about Miles Davis, the great jazz uh, musician and composer, when she read about some of his history with domestic violence. She's a really interesting writer, and I think it's great that she's getting her due because she's never quite, you know, had the accolades of somebody like Lynn Nottage or Susan Laurie Parks or any of the other great black women writers in America who have really been very much foregrounded in recent years. But I think all of them would say they owe a debt to Pearl Clark. So I'm really excited that this is going to be happening. A good mention. A good mention, indeed. I wanted to throw out one thing if we have time. Uh, Jonathan, you and I have talked before about, uh, you know, the large suburban theaters, and certainly we've given some of them shout-outs in the last couple weeks. But there are smaller theaters in the suburbs that also are worth your attention. Oil Lamp Theater in Glenview is one such company. Oak Park Festival Theater, which we've certainly covered in the past, is opening a new show, indoor show at the Pleasant a Home, called Seagulls, which is sort of a contemporary indie rock take on Chekhov. So that's pretty interesting. There's Citadel Theater in Lake Forest. I'm not going to go through everything that they're doing, but... Lest you think that suburban theater only means the larger houses that are doing musicals, please go and check out some of these smaller houses, these more intimate venues that are doing sometimes musicals, sometimes straight plays. Uh, they, they have quite a bit to offer as well. Yes, indeed. Buffalo Ensemble in Glen Ellen, the Beverly Arts Center in Beverly, the Metropolis Arts Center in Arlington Heights. Uh, these are just uh, uh, a few of the somewhat smaller uh, uh, suburban venues, and we do urge you, if you live near one of them, to check out what they're doing. 
Definitely lots to see, lots going on at the theater this fall, which is great to see, and those theater companies do need your support, as we've seen reports of even those big-name theater companies making cuts. So if you've been waiting to go back to the theater, now's probably a great time. Carrie, Jonathan, thanks so much. We'll see you next week. Oh, you're welcome, Gary. You're welcome, Gary. Thank you both. You're listening to the arts section. I'm Gary Zydek. Mention the name Moldorama to anyone who grew up in the Chicago area, and chances are they'll know instantaneously what you're referring to. Moldorama machines have been providing on-demand souvenirs and immediate joy to customers for 60 years. Most locals have encountered the space-age-looking vending machines at one of a few Chicago institutions like a museum or the Brookfield Zoo. Why go to the gift shop when you can watch or really listen and, and smell your souvenir being made? The concept is pretty simple. Put your money in. You'll hear some noises. Melted plastic is being injected into a mold and then is cooled between two metal plates and in about a minute you have a colorful plastic figurine that usually corresponds with whatever exhibition or display you're near. The very first plastic molding vending machine made its debut at the Seattle World's Fair in 1962. A number of machines were produced and placed in museums and tourist attractions, but by the end of the decade, production of new Moldorama machines shut down. Over the decades, there have been some ownership changes. Today, the official Moldorama company is owned by the Jones family and is based in suburban Brookfield. A new exhibition at the Museum of Science and Industry is celebrating the souvenir-making nostalgia that is Moldorama. I visited the Hyde Park neighborhood-based museum to get an up-close look at Moldorama molded for the future. I caught up with Jeff Bonomo, the museum's senior manager of special exhibitions. We talked about the generational interest in Moldorama and the company's strong local connections. So I think Chicago area residents have this relationship with Moldorama, and that's in part because really the, the history of these machines is tied to Illinois. Yeah, the founder actually is from Quincy, Illinois, and it's a funny story. He actually needed a piece for his nativity scene that he had lost, and then kind of started making missing pieces for people out of plaster. During World War II, plaster was not allowed to be imported in from Germany. So he had a need, um, and he realized a way to use injection molding to create pieces for his nativity scenes, and then later sound, found a need and an opportunity to turn it into kind of a souvenir business. So he made these Moldorama machines and later sold the rights to the American Retailers Association that now is known as Aramark. And then they had them throughout the country at uh, souvenir stops, tourist stations, bus stations, um, and all the likes. But they kind of started here in Quincy and they kind of still have their headquarters here in Brookfield, Illinois. Right, I was reading about the transitions over the years. So it starts with this, gets passed on, but then at some point, this it's, is it like a family in Brookfield bought it? Yeah, there's uh, two main uh, players in the field of uh, injection molding souvenir machines. And the, the biggest one is here in Brookfield, Illinois. And they actually acquired the rights recently to the name Moldorama. So that is the name of their company. And then there's another one in uh, the south called Moldomatic. Um, but the Jones family has uh, had the machine since the early 70s. Um, so they've been passing that around down through their generations. And they have about 65 machines in many different states. 
but they're kind of the heart of them are here in the Chicago land. And did I read somewhere no new machines have been produced since the 60s? That's correct. Those are still the same workhorses that have been around for almost 60 years that they just keep running well um, at their shops out in the suburbs um, and keep finding old machines to use as parts. Um, and just they keep them working and it's a testament to the machine itself, I guess. And so just for people listening, I'm sure a lot of people like know the concept, but the, the Moldorama essentially is like this vending machine that you put in whatever the, the cost is uh, these days. I'm sure that's changed over the years. And then you can pick whatever type of figure and it makes it right in front of you. Yeah, that's about right. You put in your, your money at the machine of your choice. We have about nine here in the museum and they're usually themed around the exhibition that they're near. And then two large aluminum plates come together and uh, hot plastic is injected into the mold at 250 degrees. There's actually cold water running through the mold so it kind of essentially freezes when it hits the aluminum. And then the excess is blown out and then uh, the molds break apart and the pusher pushes out your hot souvenir you take it out of the machine. You're supposed to hold it upside down for a minute. I'm not sure why, but that's just what they tell us. Um, and then you have your souvenir right, made right before your eyes. And how would you, uh, since this is radio, how would you describe the smell? It, it smells like warm plastic, um, and that's one of the things most visitors have as far as the memory of the Moldorama here at the museum and other locations is just that warm wax smell. Um, so if you follow your nose around the museum this time of year, you'll find about nine different machines, uh, four of which are in this new Moldorama exhibition. Of course, I had to get a mold while I was at the museum. I found a machine that made little yellow chicks. Lots of rumbling. Eventually, out popped a warm yellow plastic chick. The machine officially made its debut at like a World's Fair in 62, so this is the 60th anniversary. That's correct. We love an anniversary, so it's 60 years of Moldorama. <laughs> and as a part of the fun, we actually, Moldorama borrowed a mold from the 62 Fair in Seattle, which is the monorail. So you can actually create that mold here at the Museum of Science and Industry for a limited time. Was that the... Uh, I mean, I guess combination of things, that being the, uh, the anniversary and then the local ties, was that the inspiration to do this exhibit? We've been actually thinking about this exhibition for probably more than 10 years. It's always kind of made the list when we talk about fun, quirky, niche exhibitions, and there's such an underground following of Moldorama fans that uh, now is just the right time to do it. We had the space. Uh, our friends at Moldorama had some extra machines, so uh, the anniversary was actually just kind of a, a wonderful mistake. Um, we weren't really planning on it, it was just a great coincidence. So what's in the uh, exhibit? So in the exhibition we have almost 150 different Moldorama souvenirs from the Jones family from throughout the years at, throughout the country that have been made, so you can see those which are really cool to see, including the first one ever done here at the museum which was a Lincoln head in 1971. And then we have um, some really cool aluminum molds, which are the pieces that actually take the plastic and create your mold, including one which was rarely run because of the complexity, which is the Colleen Moore's Fairy Castle, which if anyone's been to the museum, they've probably seen the Fairy Castle in real life. Um, so that's down there, which is a real collectible among the Moldorama collectors. Okay. Um, of course, we have four Moldorama machines with all new to MSI molds. 
and they'll be changed out throughout the run of the exhibition over the next year. And then we have some information about just how the Moldorama is made, uh, the history of plastics, and even some uh, Bakelite, which is kind of the first uh, commercially used plastic from the early 1900s from our collection and made things a lot more uh, consumer accessible as far as cost and quantity. So we have some artifacts from that, and we have a great photo op for you to take with your first uh, Moldorama. So a lot of the things here at the museum, there's probably like a generational component where like, you know, families come and where they've come and now they're bringing their kids and their grandkids. But with Moldorama, I would, there's probably a little bit of that too. Maybe like newer generations aren't as familiar, but like grandparents and parents. Yeah, I've seen a lot of parents bringing their young kids here and they um, are just themselves enjoying the experience of watching their kids go through that experience of watching the Moldorama be made, smelling it touching the warm Moldorama and the kind of the satisfaction you get of seeing this uh, souvenir made right before your eyes. Um, so I think that's been fun to watch, but yeah, I think it's a generational thing. Everyone wants to pass that experience along to their uh, kids or grandkids when they come to the museum. And the museum has had Moldoramas here since the 70s? Yeah, 1971 is when we had the Lincoln bust in our Hall of Elements at the time, and it actually cost the guest a dime, um, but the actual material cost was a quarter so Union Carbide was the sponsor of the exhibition and they actually offset each mold by wow. 15 cents. And how much does it cost these days? Currently it is a five dollar souvenir and of course you can use a credit card now, your phone, and still cash. That's Jeff Bonomo, the Museum of Science and Industry's Senior Manager of Special Exhibitions. Moldorama, Molded for the Future, will be on display until late this year. No official close date has been announced. You can find more information at msichicago.org. I'm Gary Zydek. You're listening to the Arts Section. Few people could have predicted the impact Star Trek would have on popular culture when the original series first hit airways on September 8th, 1966. Space, the final frontier. These are the voyages of the starship Enterprise. It's five-year mission to explore strange new worlds, to seek out new life and new civilizations, to boldly go where no man has gone before. Over 55 years later, it's clear those themes still resonate with viewers all over the globe. The original Star Trek has spawned nine spin-off TV series, 13 feature-length films, and countless other adaptations and other media. While sometimes mocked, fans of Star Trek, aka Trekkies or Trekkers, are also pioneers themselves, paving the way for countless other fandoms that exist today. The recent book, Phasers on Stun, provides a comprehensive portrait of the impact Star Trek continues to have on pop culture. It comes from writer Ryan Britt, whose previous book is titled Luke Skywalker Can't Read and Other Geeky Truths. I caught up with Britt to talk about the evolution of Star Trek and how the original series started it all. You write in, in the prologue about your personal connection to, to Star Trek, dressing up as Spock for three consecutive Halloweens. And I think we're around the same age, which means the original series had ended well before 
you were born. How did you uh, initially start watching Star Trek? So I was born in 81, so I was a very young kid when Next Generation started airing. But my dad um, and my mom were both uh, big fans of the original series. So I, I came to the original series through reruns and VHS tapes. <laughs> you know, I still remember, like, the ones that I hadn't recorded off of, you know, reruns or whatever I would, I would uh, get from the video store. You know, they would have, I think there was like back then, you'd have maybe two episodes. I, some of them, I think, were just one episode per VHS. So before uh, The Next Generation started airing, and even before that, that first motion picture, though, it was really syndication that helped, would you say, revive Star Trek? Yeah, I mean, that's kind of... I, I interviewed um, Howard Weinstein, who was a writer for Star Trek The Animated Series in uh, the 70s. He was a young teenager when he sold the script to The Animated Series. And he told me that, yeah, it's this kind of common myth that Star Trek was dormant in the 70s. And he pointed out to me, which is in the book, that that's when it really blew up, <laughs> you know, because of exactly what you just said, because of uh, syndication and reruns. The original Star Trek is often credited for its progressive casting and storylines, though reading your book, it seems unclear just how political series creator Gene Roddenberry intended to be. Is is that your thought as well? Well, I think that he intended for it to be political at certain points, you know what I mean? And I think that the proof of that is sort of in what he was doing immediately before with the lieutenant um, and trying to get across sort of... Um, you know, messages of tolerance and uh, why racial division was, you know, tearing our country apart and things like that. And I think that he definitely had it. It was on his mind. You know what I mean? And he had ties to the NWACP before Star Trek. That said, I don't think that that's how he sold Star Trek. You know what I mean? It was there was no point in one of these pitch meetings where they said, and this show is going to teach people about racial tolerance. You know, it wasn't really in the series Bible. It wasn't necessarily something he communicated uh, to the writers that were pitching. It was more sort of a product of the casting. And, you know, people like Michelle Nichols and George Takei really creating their characters with him, you know, and that's in the book, too. So I think that it's it's a little bit of both. You know what I mean? Is that there's a, a bit of revisionism that suggests that that was the whole purpose of the show. Then you look at how the show was made and it wasn't necessarily the entire purpose of it, but it, but it did end up becoming a huge part of it. And he just seems like a, an interesting guy. He was he was a police officer and a pilot before he got into TV. Yeah, I mean, you know, there's this, I didn't, I, I struggled with how much of the book, you know, could be a biography of Gene Roddenberry, and there's been several biographies of Gene Roddenberry, and they're very good, and I, you know, credit them in the uh, source notes in the back of the book, but, yeah, I mean, Roddenberry, you know, was a was a commercial pilot and a military pilot, and, you know, he, he rescued uh, uh, people from a plane crash, you know, at one point, uh, you know, when he was a police officer, he was uh, writing speeches for cops, but he was also writing scripts on the side, you know, for cop shows. And I mentioned that a bit in my book of him writing for Mr. District Attorney and Highway Patrol and things like that. So, you know, all of that kind of structure and militarism, you know, that you see in Star Trek, I think, comes from that. But, you know, he didn't also like all of that structure. and He didn't necessarily like, you know, the cops. You know what I mean? So I think that you get some of that anti-authoritarianism, too. So um, if we had like a timeline of from the beginning of Star Trek, the original series, to, to now we'd have these different plot points of, of moments where different projects got started. In 1979, Paramount releases Star Trek, the motion picture, but uh, it seems like it was really the, the sequel, The Wrath of Khan, that, that seemed to rejuvenate interest in the franchise again. 
Yeah, I mean, the motion picture was on paper technically a box office success, but it still cost, you know, so much money to make. And part of that was because it was originally conceived of as a um, as a TV show at one point. There was like another Star Trek movie in 75 called Star Trek Planet of the Titans that never happened. Star Trek Phase 2 was going to be a new TV show uh, that was going to be launched on a Paramount network, which didn't end up happening at that time. Um so all of those costs kind of overburdened the motion picture. And the motion picture was not, you know, by any account of people who made it, didn't seem like it was like a fun movie to make. The Wrath of Khan, and this, there's a lot of people right now that, that I think there's a big uh, motion picture revival right now saying the motion picture was actually great. And I think that that is true. But I don't think the motion picture will convert someone to Star Trek fandom who has never seen Star Trek. You know what I mean? Like, if I were to show somebody who'd never seen Star Trek The Motion Picture or show them The Wrath of Khan, which one was more likely to convert people? And so I think that that's the power of The Wrath of Khan. And uh, Robert Salen, who was a producer on it, said this to me over the phone. He said, look, we got the people who weren't necessarily going to the Star Trek church every Sunday with The Wrath of Khan, right? They got the casual fans, too. And I think that that is the power of that movie and that for a lot of people their star trek fandom starts with the wrath of khan which at the time was a really risky dark gritty sort of pivot and so i think that that's why i sort of focus on it i can't imagine the franchise evolving into what it became uh if it weren't for the wrath of khan even aspects of the next generation that roddenberry did were in response to the wrath of khan things he didn't like about the wrath of khan he was sort of responding to so that's even like a positive byproduct you know, so I think it's there's a really huge there's a reason why that chapter is so long in my book. Sure. Today we think of we as a, a culture embrace like different fandoms, different pop culture fandoms, but it, it wasn't always like that. And you re- there's a whole chapter about uh, Trekkies or, or Trekkers. What would you say? And, and it's not like you it's uh, you have to be just one. But what are the, the major differences between a, a Star Trek fan and maybe some of the other fandoms like Star Wars? Well, I would say that with Star Trek, you have more to choose from, kind of, right? Like, you can have, like, independent kind of sub-fandoms, right? Like, and I think with Star Wars, it's a little bit more unified, oddly. You know, like, it's kind of like there's the movies, and now there's the new TV shows. But with Star Wars, the TV shows are really recent. You know, those only really, those only started in 2019. So I, I, it feels unlikely that there are Star Wars fans who only have experience Star Wars through the Mandalorian or something like that, though I suppose that that's possible. Whereas Star Trek, though, that's been going on for a long time. You know what I mean? Like, with, we started talking about this at the top of the call. Like, there are plenty of people who've never seen the original series, but watched all the 90s Star Trek shows, because they kind of stood on their own. Correlatively, there's a lot of people who, you know, may have gotten into uh, Star Trek because of the J.J. Abrams movies, and then sort of liked that sort of cinematic look, and so sort of watched the newer shows on CBS and Paramount Plus starting in 2017. You know what I mean? So that that exists. You know, I, I, I talked to uh, Celia Rose Gooding, who plays Uhura on the new show, Star Trek Strange New Worlds, and she told me that she saw her first Uhura was uh, Zoe Zaldana in the 2009 J.J. Abrams movie. And I was like, right, because that movie came out in 2009. <laughs> and so somebody who's in their 20s now might have been a kid when right. they saw it. Um, right. So I think that the difference between the fandoms is that there's just a lot of more entry points for Star Trek. 
And I think that that's pretty huge. Where with Star Wars, it's kind of like, you know, the story of Star Wars is kind of like you're going to see the original trilogy at some point. You can't imagine somebody being a huge Star Wars fan who's never seen the original trilogy. You can imagine someone who's a huge Star Trek fan who's never seen the original series, though. And that is really interesting. Right. Yeah, I was kind of thinking of like a music analogy of maybe somebody who gets into, you know, a garage rock band from today and then you know looks for what influenced that band and then takes a step back you know and then and then eventually starts listening to the blues or something i love the music analogy i was because i was inspired by this great book called uh dreaming the beatles by rob sheffield who wrote this great book about the beatles and i was like why is the world another book about the beatles i love rob i love his writing and i thought that book was really awesome and i i thought i was inspired by that book came out 2017 i was like i wish i could do that for star trek it's like a really great fun look at Star Trek for, like, the mainstream. And, you know, that's a great analogy. Like, what if you were really into Britpop? You know, you were just obsessed with, like, Oasis and Blur, like I was in high school, but then you never got into the Beatles or something. <laughs> you know what I mean? That would be, like, a Deep Space Nine fan, right? <laughs> like, they only liked Deep Space Nine and Voyager, but they never went back. And, and you know what? That's valid. That's the cool thing about Star Trek fandom is that's valid. Nobody's like, oh, you have to watch the original series. I think you should, but, like, I know a lot of fans that just are like, nah, I can't get in the original series. I'm like, that's all right. <laughs> that's what i was kind of curious about yeah if there was people that maybe got into maybe the young people watching picard now on uh you know streaming on paramount plus and then do they go back and, and watch the films and then eventually the original series yeah i don't know with strange new worlds it's interesting like the which is the show that's coming out right now like there's so much you'll get you'll like be like, right, if you've seen the original series, you'll be, it'll be great because you'll say, okay, I understand all these references and I understand the things they're gesturing at. But if you're someone like, you know, like my wife, for example, who's like a Star Trek, she's not like a huge fan, so sometimes she'll just be like, what are they referencing? It, it doesn't matter, right? Like she'll never need to rewatch a muck time or something like that to appreciate like the Strange New World episode that's out this week that's kind of referencing it. It'll the new shows can kind of like stand on their own. I mean, I can't imagine watching Picard with no knowledge of who Jean-Luc Picard is, but I guess it's possible. Right, right, <laughs> you right. Know, I, I guess it's possible, and it, it would be kind of an interesting thought experiment, right? But yeah, I don't know. Like, you know, the, the show, I guess it's like, you know, could you watch WandaVision without having watched Endgame, Avengers Endgame? Maybe, you know, and at some point we'll get far along in those kinds of fandoms that that'll be like it. So, yeah, I mean, I think that the MCU is an interesting comparison because, you know, Star Trek was kind of doing that in the 90s. You know, they had, like, two TV shows on, like, Next Gen, Deep Space Nine, and then they had movies that were referencing those events. You know, and that nobody did that back then. You know, now we're just like, oh, everybody does that. But, you know, back then, nobody did. If you're just tuning in, you're listening to the Arts Section. My name's Gary Zydek. I'm talking with author Ryan Britt about his new book, Phasers on Stun, How the Making and Remaking of Star Trek Changed the World. And just to go back to, to something you said earlier about that actor who, who talked to you about Zoe Saldana being their inspiration, it, it kind of reminds me of a, a parallel with with Batman. For me, growing up, Michael Keaton is my Batman because those movies came out when I was a kid and then I had an intern a few years ago and Christian Bale was his Batman and now probably in a few years I'll have an intern and his Batman will be Robert Pattinson. I, so I interviewed Timothy Chalamet because I was writing an article about Dune last year and I'm writing a book about Dune now and <laughs> Timothy Chalamet was inspired to become an actor by seeing The Dark Knight. <laughs> in the theater, you know, and so I, I, you know, I'm like, oh, right, because Timothy Chalamet's like 25, you know, and so I'm like, okay, right, that checks. 
<laughs> so I think that it's very similar. Star Trek's like that. It's like Batman and 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 Bond, and you know, in that way. But the difference is, is that like with all these tributaries of like these shows and movies that completely kind of sidestep the really more the, the other characters, and then you know, certain characters kind of get their moment, you know, and and then kind of other shows don't even mention them um you know so and that's something with like with like a batman shared universe you can't really imagine you know what i mean like even like a you know a harley quinn movie will go out of its way to like mention the joker right right. Um, whereas like you know there's like whole seasons of you know uh deep space nine where nobody mentions anybody from the next generation or anything so i know you've written extensively about star trek uh for publications and from different sites uh what made you decide to 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 create a book project? Well, that's a good question. I was really excited. I mean, this is the um, this weekend is the 40th anniversary of the Wrath of Khan. And so I was thinking about the idea that, there, that the Wrath of Khan anniversary was coming up in, in, in two years. This was in like early 2020. And I was thinking, again, I mentioned that Rob Sheffield book, Dreaming the Beatles. I thought that was such like a, I really wanted to do another nonfiction book. My first book was an essay collection. I really wanted to do a nonfiction book that was just about one thing. And I know a lot about Star Trek. And since 2016, I've been reporting and doing journalistic work on the new shows. And so I was kind of like, what can I do with all of this kind of like information I have and thoughts I have? And so it kind of started off as maybe a book about the 80s. And then I talked with my agent and folks at uh, my publisher, and they were kind of like, what if we just did the whole thing and just kind of made it really accessible? And I was like, let me see if I can make <laughs> let me see if I can do that. And so it just kind of become, became this sort of like how to make a book for everybody about Star Trek. And, you know, I think I probably succeed about half the time. <laughs> no, it's it's great. Uh, and then just uh, really quickly, your hopes for uh, for people that, that do pick it up, what they take away? I just hope that they take away like just like how improbable it is that this even exists, that we shouldn't take Star Trek for granted, but we do. We just take it for granted. We take for granted that it exists. Then when you look at the hundreds and hundreds of different people that were almost not in Star Trek or, you know, like it almost didn't come out this way. And then and then the fact that it did is just like, wow, we really got lucky that this exists at all. And so I think that, that just being awestruck by it, by its um, how uh, uh, varied it is. And, you know, the fact that Star Wars wouldn't exist without it. And the fact that the space program would look totally different without it. You know, just like, you know, maybe Barack Obama wouldn't pursue politics because he loves Fox so much, you know. <laughs> So, you know, I think it's, it's, it's a lot to think about. Didn't know what time it was. That's Ryan Britt. He's the author of Phasers on Stun, How the Making and Remaking of Star Trek Changed the World. It's available everywhere books are sold. This past Friday was the 57th anniversary of the original air date for the first ever episode of Star Trek. <laughs> And that's going to wrap up this edition of the Arts Section. But remember, you can always find more arts and culture online by visiting the program's website, theartssection.org. There you can find past episodes and individual features available to listen to on demand anytime you want, plus pictures and links that go along with all the stories you hear on the show. My name's Gary Zydek. I hope you'll join me again. Next Sunday morning at 8 a.m. right here on 90.9 and 90.7 FM for another edition of the Arts Section. Until then, I hope you have a great week. Enjoy the weekend. Maybe enjoy some football this afternoon. Thanks for listening.